Welcome to IFL Science The Big Questions, the podcast where we invite the experts to explore the biggest mysteries of science with your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. Computers and supercomputers play a pivotal role in our lives, from the most basic telecommunication to the design of the most advanced technology. We rely on these instruments to push beyond our limits. But what about their limits? For as much as they get faster and faster, conventional computing technology won't improve forever. So what happens when they reach those limits? Are there ways to avoid them? To help us answer this crucial technological query, we are joined by award-winning engineer Mazar Ali, Associate Professor at Delft University of Technology. His work is actually pushing those limits. Hello, Professor Ali. Thank you for joining us. Can you please tell us about yourself and your work? Okay. So my name is Mazhar Ali, of course. I'm a professor at TU Delft in the quantum nanoscience uh, department, which is part of the Faculty of Applied Sciences. Um, also part of the KIND, the Kavli Institute for Nanoscience at Delft, which is a, a very important organization that does, you know, nano and quantum research, in particular related to the, the some of the big questions. It's we say uh, the we try to answer the biggest questions of the very small. <laughs> so let's see. My group here focuses on what we call the three Qs: um, quantum materials, or their quantum properties for making quantum devices. The idea is there are a class of materials called quantum materials that really, I mean, they're so-called because they're not best described classically. It's a bit of a broad definition, but it has a really important point in that they're manifesting quantum mechanical properties, often at macroscopic scales, which gives us the opportunity to try to tap into, you know, those quantum mechanical phenomena beyond even just a, just let's say first order effects, trying to actually take advantage of things like quantization nowadays. And so it's really, you know, something that's taken off in the last maybe 15, 20 years. Graphene is arguably probably the most famous quantum material I think everybody knows about. It manifests all kinds of interesting properties, um, particularly most famous for hosting electrons that can travel near the speed of light, ultra high mobility, right? which is now something we've found in a lot of other materials that share that common trait. It's called it being a Dirac semi-metal. So, so those are examples of quantum materials. And, and that's an example of, of some of their quantum mechanical properties. Um, the other, another famous category is let's say uh, superconductors, um, which is, you know, relevant to, of course, what we've done. Uh, and the, the trick there is that instead of electrons traveling around independently through a material, they actually are able to pair, which is counterintuitive because normally you think of electrons as essentially being repulsive to each other, which they are from the Coulomb force. But there are ways, scenarios in which they can actually overcome that repulsion and end up having an attractive uh, potential, usually through some mediating particle like a phonon. And in the end, they're able to pair and by pairing, they are not acting as fermions anymore and you know stuck with fermionic statistics meaning say only uh, two particles for every energy level they're acting more like bosons which have the trait of having essentially 
an infinite number of particles possible in one energy level, as in you can have identical particles, where fermions you can't. And the important point of that is that it lets you basically create an energy gap between these this level energy level with all these uh, you know infinite number of particles and the next energy level so that becomes a superconducting energy gap and the point of that gap is that in order for something to stop superconducting it has to have hit something with sufficient energy to jump that gap so this gap is like a barrier and that allows that you know it's like a protection from scattering because it has to, something has to hit it with enough energy to overcome that barrier. So because of that, these superconducting materials can have a, essentially have electricity travel without any resistive loss. So you could make a superconducting wire from here to the moon, for example. Um, and as long as you kept it cold, you would actually lose no energy in the transmission which is a big drawback for today, even though we have, you know, very good copper wires all around the planet transmitting electricity, we actually do lose a very significant amount of energy just in transmission. Um, so, so superconductivity is a very important property and it's a, it's a fundamentally for coming, as I explained now, as you heard, uh, from a quantum mechanical state. So those are quantum materials and quantum properties. Lastly, the idea is to make quantum devices. So to take these types of materials with, take advantage of those properties and make things like uh, integrated into computer chips, for example, or other type of electronics for next generation technologies. Like for example, probably the most popular thing I could talk about is uh, quantum computing, um, which case in point actually currently is still taking advantage of superconductivity. That's another place superconductivity is important. The qubit today, uh, IBM uh, and everybody's Google's, everybody's qubits today are still superconducting qubits. And at the heart of their that uh, particular technology is a Josephson junction, which is the junction of two superconductors across a non-superconducting barrier. So it's like if it's like a hamburger where the two buns are superconductors and the meat patty is something that just wasn't superconducting. And the trick there, the point of doing such a thing is that the the two superconductors, again, being quantum mechanical, we can talk about the wave function describing the conductivity, essentially, in the two superconductors. And those wave functions of the independent superconductors have to talk to each other through that non-superconductor. And so they can interfere with each other. And uh, that interference is super important, actually. <laughs> and it gave rise to the SQUID, the superconducting quantum interference device. Um, and the Josephson relation. So Joseph, Brian Josephson, when he was in, I think, just a grad student. Yeah, he was like 22, I think, or 23 years old. And uh, he wrote down famously, he did a, almost like a, like a, just a homework problem style. He wrote down uh, what he thought would happen if you took the scenario of two superconductors across a non-superconducting barrier. And he found that you could still superconduct because if the wave functions constructively interfered, then they you would able to have be able to have uh, these Cooper pairs, the superconductivity across the barrier as though the barrier wasn't even there. But when they're out of phase, then it would turn off. The superconductivity would die. And how how could you tune the phase? And that was a very important finding. The phase is modulated by a magnetic field. So all of a sudden, you could have a device where you could have superconductivity on or off as a function of a very small applied magnetic field. And so if you were measuring 
whether it was superconducting or not. And you wanted to be able to tell if there was, let's say, a magnetic field around, let's say, even the magnetic field of your of your brain. It's so sensitive. You know, it's 10 to the minus like 15 Tesla is a magnetic field generated by your brain. This device is able to be so sensitive that it can detect that because it would turn off the superconductivity by making the wave functions misalign. From quantum computing to, to magnetic resonance imaging, which is actually the same thing of what I just talked about, um, this magnetic field detector, uh, superconductivity is super important. <laughs> what a tour de force of uh, everything uh, that uh, your institution is working on and many other researchers across the planet. Uh, but... I am in particular interested in one of your team developments. You have created a one-way superconductor, which we think is an incredible breakthrough. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and its potential impact on computers? True, right. So everything I talked about in superconductivity in general has always been two-way, let's say. The, the term we use in the, in the field is reciprocal. Now, reciprocal versus non-reciprocal, as in, you know, one-way, is a very important concept in electronics in general. So, so the idea of reciprocity is this, is that something that flows forward also flows back in the same manner. <laughs> that is what it means to be reciprocal. What it means to be non-reciprocal is very simply that something that flows forward does not flow uh, backwards necessarily, let's say, in the same way. While reciprocity is very important in physics, it's also very important in technical applications where it governs a lot of the properties of, of devices that you use. However, non-reciprocal components are equally important. You may not realize it, but every piece of technology you're using, um, in particular to do this right now, <laughs> you know, you're on a computer using a monitor as well as wireless transmitters, etc., they all have non-reciprocal components in them. Probably the most basic example of a non-reciprocal component is a diode, right? A diode literally conducts electricity forwards. And if you reverse the voltage within a certain you know, limit, it won't conduct electricity. The, the most famous example is the pin diode, the semiconducting diode that uh, was you know, the precursor to semiconducting transistors and basically all semiconducting electronics, you know, thereafter. So non, again, non-reciprocity is, is super important, but, uh, but superconductivity was always reciprocal, two-way. So for a long time, it's been desired to try to figure out a way to make a one-way superconductor, to make a non-reciprocal superconductivity, especially without requiring any external modifications, like an like a external magnetic field or something. You know, you don't want to have to control it with a third or fourth knob to be able to do so, to, to be able to control it, you know, just uh, on chip. Yeah, uh, that's basically what our team did. And what our trick was essentially was to use a Josephson junction. We made a special type of Josephson junction, a quantum material Josephson junction. So we call it a QMJJ is the, is the term we're starting to use. So what we did, we took uh, what I described before, we took two superconductors as the buns, but this time as the burger, uh, instead of a classical material, we used one of our, let's say, special 2D quantum materials that has some intrinsic symmetry breaking properties that when we made this, this device, this junction, it as a whole broke 
this broke inversion symmetry and it pierced time reversal symmetry. And the key to becoming non-reciprocal was to that you have to break symmetries, right? If something, again, moving forward is the same moving backward, it means it's locked together primarily by time reversal symmetry. Because you can imagine moving forward and moving backwards as forward in time and backwards in time. It's like if you were rewinding it uh, on a yeah. video camera, if you were seeing it backwards, right. if it still looks the same, uh, it would uh, uh, clearly uh, be symmetrical. Like if an angle is rolling off a table, you mm -hmm. would know that that's uh, uh, and break on the floor. You would know that that's, that doesn't work. Uh, right. Backwards, you, you don't experience eggs uh, jumping off from the floor and coming together. Right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Exactly. So in order to, to unlock the two-way you know, superconductivity into being one way, we had to break symmetries. So we took advantage of these quantum materials that intrinsically broke these symmetries, stuffed it in between two superconductors, made our Josephson junction, and you know, there, there you go, it worked. <laughs> and so uh, and the big thing is that it, we're able to do this without requiring an external field. There's no external knob. So, so that was why this is very important because it means we can start making semi or superconducting devices that are analogous to semiconducting devices now. We can make superconducting diodes, which is what we did. We made a Josephson diode. And uh, hopefully next step, you know, we can make superconducting Josephson transistors in the same way and, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, so that overcomes a lot of the problems, let's say, that uh, semiconducting electronics have hit, right? Which has been that you, you can't go faster anymore, right? You've noticed your, your laptop maxed out about three or so gigahertz, four gigahertz, maybe a decade ago. We don't really increase clock speed anymore. We've been making more and more devices in smaller and smaller uh, footprints, but we can't go faster. And there's many, there's a few reasons for that. One reason, one important reason that, that you know, computing is plateaued is just that we generate a lot of heat, we waste a lot of energy. So if you had superconducting devices that were literally not having resistance in, you know, half the time, let's say in the on state, then there's a potential to save a lot of energy. And it also depends on the, the power that is needed to switch the superconductivity on and off. And uh, we found that we were able to do this roughly a hundred at a roughly a hundred times less power than is currently used in uh, in let's say semiconducting chips. And in theory, and that's the other real fun part. And you know, this is actually sorry, it's not just theory. You know, about forty years ago at IBM, they had started investigating a Josephson junction computer. So they they thought. Uh, even a long time ago that, look, superconductivity would make a very fast and energy efficient computer. Let's give it a try. And they they really did. And they, they made these devices and they found first that they could switch almost at terahertz speed. So that's a roughly, you know, three or four hundred times faster than today's computers. Right. But they were able to switch these devices, but they found that, there's, you know, one big problem, which was that superconductivity was reciprocal. And they would had a lot of error when trying to do the switching. The bits weren't uh, as robust as you know the semiconducting versions because of the non-reciprocal nature, like I said, of the semiconducting electronics based on things like diodes and transistors. 
since there was no superconducting version, they were just switching basically reciprocal devices. And when they would try to turn it off, if they were even a little bit inaccurate, which, you know, is life, then they couldn't turn it off and they would have an error. So, so even though they were able to go, you know, at almost terahertz speeds, they had a lot of error. And they specifically said, boy, it would be great if we had a you know, non-reciprocal superconductor. So here we are 40 years later solving that problem and saying that, look, first off, that we can definitely switch way at way lower energies. And now we're going to try in the lab to recreate those experiments from long ago using our one-way superconducting uh, diodes, or let's call them uh, non-reciprocal superconductors and see and confirm hopefully that we can still switch at terahertz speeds as well. In which case, you know, we're off to the races, right? It basically resets Moore's law. Rather, you know, we can start scaling speed up again, even though, yeah, you have to cool superconductor down. You know, you don't have to cool it down enough so much that it offsets the energy savings. That was very intriguing and you have hinted at our big questions uh, with the mention of uh, uh, well the, how computers are plateaued and uh, Moore's law. So the question is what do you consider to be the current limits of traditional computers and supercomputers? Ah so uh, I mean there's a couple I guess that I can rattle off that I suppose uh, are pretty well known right there's First off, I guess there's, like I said, the, what is it, power uh, density. There's an issue with how much, let's say, heat we can deal with in a certain area uh, in terms of uh, getting rid of it. And, you know, that number for is roughly 150, if I remember right, 150 watts per centimeter square is the air cool limit. <laughs> so beyond that, if you were trying to make a computer chip that was let's say generating even more heat than that, then uh, then you can't air cool it. You need your, your liquid cooled, super fancy computer tech. So then, then maybe you could overclock it, I suppose, and go even faster, right? Get up to five, six gigahertz or whatever. But, uh, but the air cool, that's part of why we end up with that clock speed limit is just, you know, one reason is trying to get rid of all this heat very quickly. And so related to that, you know, all these things are interrelated, okay? And related to that is the is so-called 60 millivolts per decade. So basically that, you know, it takes a certain amount of, uh, let's say, voltage to trigger a certain order of magnitude change in, let's say, the current you're measuring across your device. So what I mean by that is if you have a zero state and a one state, in order to not have very much error, you want them to be as far apart as possible. You want your zero state or let's say your off state to maybe be really uh, highly resistive and your on state to be really low resistance. And, and then there's a question of, okay, in order to switch between these two states, how much does it cost you, right? And, uh, and that number is roughly 60 millivolts per order of magnitude. <laughs> and that's pretty good, but now you see why it's tied to the amount of uh, heat generated. If you could change how resistive you are for less than 60 millivolts per decade, then you would generate less heat and you could go, you know, you could go faster or stuff more down, right? All of these these numbers are interrelated. So those, you know, are a couple reasons of why traditional computers have gotten pretty limited in terms of, especially in terms of, let's say, workstations. You know, nowadays, 
frankly, a lot of the real computation isn't done by us at, as terminal users, right? They're done in huge processing centers. And we're just, like I said, we're just people using terminals that are connecting over the, the fact that we have these high-speed communication capabilities. We send requests to places to do the computation, and then we get the answer back. And those are often these, let's say, supercomputers, which you know is half a logistical problem as opposed to a pure tech problem, because it's really like stuffing in all of these currently, well, as fast as we can go computers into racks, you know, in cooled buildings located in places that, you know, offset the cooling and, and energy costs of such a building. So, so ideally, you know, somewhere up in like, I don't know, the Antarctic or the Arctic <laughs> would be a good place to put a supercomputer, but not great for the planet, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, that, that's where I'd stop there. Those are some of the, let's say, the limits of the traditional approach, especially the von Neumann style computing, which is what, you know, these are. And you and your team have already worked on one potential breakthrough to push beyond those limits. Mm. Um, do you have uh, any insights on other breakthroughs uh, that uh, could uh, push past those limits, if there are any? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so we have a we have a route, right? We're trying to basically continue or extend the von Neumann route using our special materials and our special junctions to allow that route to go faster and be more energy efficient. Okay, that's a way. Um, but there are other ways that are you know trying to change the formula completely, as it were. Um, for example, quantum computing, which is just fundamentally different in how it works, um, which is really about approximating a two-level system as best we can, like I said, tradition using, for example, superconducting qubits and, uh, you know, storing information and processing information rather than in zeros and ones in a superposition of all states in between to, to try to, yeah, essentially be able to map an entire problem space uh, much faster <laughs> to, oh, to dramatically simplify things. And that is that is a very very good approach, a very powerful approach, and we're starting to see it reach you know uh, relevance. It's it's getting there. Um, there have been some setbacks recently, of course, but but it's still it's still progressing pretty well. And there's a few other different approaches. There's uh, neuromorphic computing, which is a very interesting approach, which is you know related to trying to approximate more how our brain works. With maybe the biggest difference there being that. For example, the type of computing I was talking about is three terminal based, let's say. There's an in and out and then a control. Something that controls whether you're going in or out, right? Um, your brain works a bit differently. Um, it's really two terminal, let's say. There's, a, there's just an in and an out, but whether or not a signal coming in makes it to the out <laughs> is, a, is entirely dependent upon the signal itself. Which is, which is quite unique. There's not an extra control. The signal is the control. Above a certain threshold, the signal passes through completely. And below a certain threshold, the signal is critically damped. This is, this is basically whether or not your neuron quote unquote fires. And, uh, and that is very different. <laughs> that is very different from the, the other approaches. So it's a very interesting question as to how we can, we can approximate this. Um, because it's very tied to then joining together many of these types of devices, neurons, 
and we found you know above a certain number of connections we start to get so-called emergent behavior where where it acts no longer just like the sum of its parts right there's more coming out than than going in which is a very interesting scenario that frankly the whole field is still trying to wrap its head around and uh, and then there's a few others you can throw out you know reservoir computing which is an interesting uh, alternative route but uh but yeah yeah okay i'd say the right now the front runners are quantum computing and neuromorphic computing is my bias i suppose and and hopefully you know now our superconducting uh, non-reciprocal superconducting computing hopefully comes up and hopefully it comes up very fast i think i think it will <laughs> that uh, sounds fantastic and i hope uh, it does come really fast uh, to <laughs> counteract some of uh, the limits that uh, current computers have thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today of course thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening to IFL Science The Big Questions. Head over to iflscience.com and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so you don't miss out on the biggest stories each week. Until next time.